0: So I invite you to turn with me this evening briefly for our exposition to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. And for those of you who have uh, read the book of Ephesians before, you'll know that Paul has been laboring uh, in this letter to the churches surrounding the area of Ephesus, reminding them, of such high and lofty Christology or teachings about Jesus Christ, reminding us that though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God, who has mercy and grace, has loved us and has plucked us from the snares of death and adopted us into his family. And brought us to life and to light. And so now as Paul moves from exaltation of Jesus Christ. And is reminded the believers who they are in Christ. Now in beginning of chapter 4. Which really serves uh, as the hinge point. Or the turning point in this letter to the Ephesians. Where he begins to apply. He begins to ask the question that is so important. Anytime we come to our Bibles to ask. So what? What does this matter? How do I apply this? At times when I've walked through the book of Ephesians with our people at Trinity, I've I've reminded us that we could really distill uh, an overview or a theme of the entire letter to the Ephesians with two words. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul reminds us who we are. And then in chapters four through six, he reminds us what we are to do. Say so you say, that's not two words, but who and what? Or who and do? Who do? It's probably a name of a soda. I haven't trademarked that. Who are we? And so what? What are we called to do? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ in this crazy family called the local church? What does it mean to be in Christ in Kent, Ohio, and a part of Christ Presbyterian here in Kent? Well, that's what I want to look at briefly with you this evening. So, here again, the word of the Lord. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. far above all the heavens, that He might fit fill all things. He gave, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of Christ, the fullness of Christ. Amen. We know, I'm sure you've heard Pastor Pilon remind you, if you've been a part of a Reformed or Presbyterian church very long, uh, probably the most famous catechism question from our standards of theology, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Question one which is, what is mankind's chief end? What is our purpose? Why are we here? What are we doing? In the corporate and economic world, they call it a mission statement or a vision statement. And the Westminster Divines, over 400 years ago, answered that question in a beautiful and succinct way based upon what the scriptures say, that our chief end is to glorify God And to enjoy Him forever. That's what we're here for. And so as believers, your great mission and vision and purpose for existing is not to live the American dream. Or make a lot of money. Or have a big house and 2.5 kids that never act up. To have success. Now, mind you, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But God never calls us to success, does he? He calls us to faithfulness and, Lord willing, fruitfulness. But if that is our mission as individual believers, it begs the question, what does that mean for the church? What is the church's mission? And you can go uh, to most churches and find all kinds of vision and mission statements, some which are really good, and I'm not going to name names, but some which are really bad. So many churches in the modern American evangelical church, it would be frankly uh, more honest if they would just adapt their statement to reflect what they really are, which Burger King has already taken that motto, have it your way. That's the attitude of many people. When they come into the community of God's people, we are looking for what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. But Paul here in Ephesians 4 is giving us a very different picture. He says, as God's people, our mission, the purpose for which the church exists, yes, of course, is primarily and foundationally the glory of Jesus Christ. But it is also, look at verse 11 and 12. Why has God given us the church? Why has God chosen for himself his bride? He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why did he do all of this? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now notice, that's important. And I remind myself, and I just reminded our elders at Trinity this past week in our monthly session meeting. It's a reminder that the apostles and shepherds and prophets and teachers are not the ones who are only doing the ministry. But our role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is that work of ministry? Paul tells us. The building up of the body of Christ. Now we hear that and we say, okay, we're built up like, like a child. It, it, it grows and, and the churches are just like people. They have seasons and lifespans. And you all are still in the infancy, in the baby stage of your life as a congregation. And that's wonderful. There's a lot of things that are great and powerful. There's a lot of opportunities and challenge. I know as we were a church plant, we're right there with you. We know what it's like in that first year. Hang in there. It's beautiful and wonderful and hard all at the same time. We know that. But we're not being built up or growing just to become big and tall and strong. That's the American model of success. Well, if bigger is truly better, and if numbers are the main barometer of spiritual health, then Joel Osteen has the healthiest church in America. And if you know anything about Joel Osteen, he is not the most faithful or healthy pastor in America. We're to go for maturity and faithfulness that leads to fruitfulness, not size or power or status. But notice here, too, as we read the text, that even as we talk about the building up of the saints and the equipping of the saints for ministry, that our spiritual growth is not an individualistic attainment. My growth as a believer is not about me. It's about us. My friend John Tweedale writes in an article on the Church for Ligonier Ministry, and reminds us that a churchless Christian ought to be an oxymoron. We can't grow spiritually with our Lord Jesus. Imagine if you have a very good friend, and your very good friend invites you over to dinner or out to dinner, and say, I'd love to come, but I can't stand your spouse. Your spouse is pushy, your spouse is a mess, Your spouse has hurt my feelings. I don't like the type of music your spouse likes. I don't like the people your spouse hangs out with. I like you. I want nothing to do with your bride. We'd say, that's not a very good friend, is it? But you know, Christians say that about the church all the time. And look, I know it's the easiest thing in the world to take a pot shot at the church, right? I'm a pastor. I know way more messy things than most people do. I've I've told people told me I don't want to go to church it's a bunch of sinners like please would you come help us It's way worse than you think it is Join the club we're a mess But if you think this is this museum for saints who have perfectly lived no we have one hero jesus christ we have one person we exalt we do not exist to be impressed with ourselves we do not exist primarily to build up ourselves in our own minds or in our own status we exist to build up christ and exalt him and in the process we grow into maturity i know of no parent who at least loves their children who doesn't want their son or their daughter to grow up into maturity right for those of you who are or have been parents, you want your kids, your loved ones to grow up and to make it right and to be on their own. That's what God wants for his bride, his church, his people. But we can't do that. We can't do that. Look at verse 14. Our maturity is necessary so that we may longer no longer be children. And a Way to identify a childish or immature believer or church is someone who is tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. Rather, we speak the truth in love. We need to speak the truth. We need to do it in love. It's been said by so many authors, I'm not even sure who to quote. But the truth without love is brutal and hard and cruel. But the love without truth is cruel as well. It's a both and, not an either or. And so God gives people gifts for the building up of his church. We don't have time tonight, but if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 12, you'll see everybody has a part to play. Jacob and Ann Jeanette Pilon have been called by the Lord and by the session of Redeemer Church to plant Christ Present Kent. But they're not the only ones called to ministry here at Christ Present Kent. Every single one of you and its members are called to play a part and a role. And every role is equally important, even though it's different in its function. As a pastor, I am very aware very aware that God doesn't need me to build his church. He chooses to use broken vessels like myself, like my brother Jacob, even like Ernie. (laughs) Amen. Wow. He uses us, but he doesn't need us. We have the great privilege of playing a role and a part in the kingdom to serve as a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. You know, as I think about gifts and vocation and roles to play, uh, we were talking with our son Harper a few weeks ago, just about different jobs that people do. And I don't know anybody that grows up and says, Mommy and Dad, I can't wait to be a garbage man. But you know what? Think about what would happen in this world if no one were garbage men. How awful would that be? All kinds of things that sometimes we, again, hold up and value and prize as this is what success is. But you know, no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you clean toilets, whether you preach or pray, whether you hand out bulletins or play music, whatever you do, we do it all to the glory of the Lord and everybody is necessary. And everybody, this can't be done without you. When I tell people, we missed you last Sunday, I'm not trying to do a guilt trip. I'm not the attendance police. But there's something about when you're not here, there's something that I miss out on. As Paul writes, what can the the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? They can't say that. I don't know anybody that says, yeah, you can cut off my toes or take away my knees, no big deal, I'll be fine. No, our whole body is necessary. We need all our parts to function well and as we're ought to, right? As we've been designed to. So too, as God's people, given various gifts, we're to use those gifts. Not everyone's called to be a preacher. Not everyone's called to be a leader. That's good and okay. But everyone's called to something. And if you're wondering, what am I called to? Ask yourself that question. What has God gifted me to do? And if you're not sure what God has gifted you to do, ask the people who, those, people who know you the best. Seek counsel from your elders and your pastor. Find ways in which you can plug in and be utilized for this great mission of the church to advance the ministry and the maturity of God's people. Jacob can't do it alone see he won't say that but I I I get to go back to North Canton after this so I can say it and if I offend you I love you but sorry. Can't do it alone. This is the ministry and life of the church is all hands on deck. But I want to go back to the beginning of the passage. Verse 1 when Paul says in Ephesians 4 I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. What a great What a great moniker to identify himself. Who are you? Oh, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He doesn't say, well, I'm uh, possibly the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Or I'm the author of 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Or I'm the former Saul of Tarsus, who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born born under the law, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to a zeal, nobody was more zealous than me. How does he look at himself? How does he view himself? How do we view ourselves? He sees himself, who he literally was at many times, a prisoner in bondage and in change. But whether he was free or behind bars, Paul primarily saw himself as a doulos, which is the Greek word for servant. He is a servant. He is a slave. He is a prisoner. And he's urging us as God's people to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now he's not saying here walk in a manner to earn God's love. Even when God gave his law at Mount Sinai, Israel was not called to obey it in order to win God's love and redemption. Why not? Because he already had bestowed his love and his redemption upon them. The 10 commandments preface, which is so crucial begins by saying, I am the Lord, your God. There's already relationship. Who brought you out, out of the house of bondage, out of captivity and slavery after 400 years in Egypt. Therefore, now that we're in this covenant relationship, now that we're in this community together, now that we have this established covenant, here's how we live. What Paul is saying is because of what God has done, that's why he says, therefore, anytime you read the scriptures and you see a therefore, ask yourself, what's the therefore Therefore, Again, we don't have time to read through the first three chapters of Ephesians, but Paul is building upon all the themes that he has developed thus far. And he says, so therefore, be who you are, church. Be who you are. 99.9% of all the imperatives or commands in the New Testament are related to that truth. Be who you already are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. One of my heroes, R.C. Sproul, says about this text and tells us a great story, one of his favorite stories of Alexander the Great, the great conqueror of the ancient world. Who, after one battle, there was a young soldier who fled and was a deserter. And after he was captured, he was brought back to Alexander the Great and was uh, kneeling before this great general and commander, begging and pleading for mercy. And Alexander the Great looked at him and says, Young man, what is your name? The young man looks up at him and says, Alexander. And Alexander the Great looks at him and says, Change your name. Or change your conduct. Change your name. Or change your conduct. Be who you are. If you're going to have the name Alexander, you're not living like it. Be who we are. And who are we called in Jesus Christ? Look at this. As I read this in verses 1 to 4, did it remind you of any other place in the New Testament? Particularly a letter of Paul? Paul? I'll give you a clue. Think of the letter to the Galatians. He says this, I urge you to walk in a manner of the worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do we do that? Or what does that look like? A life of repentance is not just saying we're sorry. Repentance bears fruit. It looks like something. And here's what it looks like. All humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love. If we're going to build each other up to maturity and fullness in Jesus Christ, what is that practically going to look like on a Sunday by Sunday basis? Well, here it is. Humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of, of peace. Are you eager for the church to be unified? Or is being a separatist more natural for you? We find something we don't like, and then we leave, or we separate. Now, there are things we're separating over, don't get me wrong. But what is our attitude? What is the calibration of our minds and our hearts and our perspective? What is the fruit? That word for fruit in the Greek, although it's in the singular, has a plural implication. If you think of a blossoming of a flower, it's not just one little petal, right? It's like with the blossoming of a flower it's like a a beautiful symphony of praise, not only to the Creator God, who made the blossoming flower, but there's many facets of it. And so it's not just, how do we tell if the Spirit is at work in us? Again, not to attain His love. But how do we know if we are blossoming, if that tree is bearing fruit, if we're being pruned, or if we're dead? Therefore, the absence of this fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, self-control. Again, not do this and live, but if we look to our lives, are we growing in these things? Are we growing in maturity? Nobody expects a kindergartner to know calculus, right? I still don't know calculus. I was not a math guy. But as we grow in maturity, as we be who we are, as we recognize the unity of the church, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism... That he has given these gifts for the building up of God's people. As we do that, that's going to look like a whole host of things. And it would be inappropriate for me to paint one portrait of what the church ought to be. Because it's a great and beautiful mosaic. It's going to look like one thing here in Kenton, Ohio. Which is going to be different than the church in Hong Kong which is going to be different in the church in Cape Town, South Africa. Even it'll be a little different from the church in North Canton, Ohio, or Hudson, Ohio. And that is okay. Because what unites us is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Even amidst the diversity and context of these expressions. But I want to encourage us is we have this unity of purpose, the maturity and the, the fullness and fruitfulness of the church together. That again, I'm not coming to discipleship so that I can grow stronger, but my maturity is also going to impact and affect those around me in the church. Have you ever thought of your spiritual growth as primarily not about you, but for the, bel- uh, the welfare and well-being of those around you as well? At our, the church I served in Mississippi, uh, we used to have an annual men's retreat. and a couple of years, we were having a hard time getting men to sign up. And one of the other pastors uh, spoke to one of the ladies' Bible studies. He says, Ladies, I get you've got guys that work hard all during the week, and it's the weekend, and so you want, hey, this is my time with my husband, uh, with me, and for him to be with our kids. He says, But you know what? Selfishly, why don't you send him away to be with other brothers in Christ so that when he is home, he is a better husband and a better father. I know it's counterintuitive, but as he grows in the Lord, guess what's going to happen? And with other brothers in Christ, he's going to grow in his marriage and in his fatherhood. Again, we, we, I think sometimes it's not that we're always wrong. It's that we're having uh, the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Did you get that? We're emphasizing the wrong things. It's not that what we're saying is blasphemous or wrong. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, uh, this is my time. But it beginning to see our very lives in a grander picture called the church. There's a new book that's just been published that I absolutely love. I'm only halfway through, but it's been so encouraging. I brought it tonight. It's called The Loveliest Place. It's written by Dustin Benj, who's a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And it's part of the Crossway series that, or excuse me, the Union series that Crossway has published, uh, which is a phenomenal series. But this is about the beauty and glory of the church. Now, I talk to so many people who do not see the local church as beautiful or glorious. And he writes in this book specifically about and for people who would see, who have been hurt and burned by the church. But again, the church is Jesus' bride. Be careful what you say about his bride. But I want to quote from you, particularly when he has a chapter, tying these wonderful themes together, of the fruit of the Spirit and, and living out in the local church, particularly about the fruit of the Spirit of joy. Benj writes this, When the buds of joy blossom on the branch, the Spirit is generating more than mere happiness. The result is a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 1 Peter 1.8 A joy unconditional, independent of the circumstances around us. Cultural demise? The church has joy. Political disorder? The church has joy. Worldwide pandemic? The church has joy, a joy that streams without any circumstantial obstruction out of a heart that is wholly satisfied in Christ and the promises of Scripture. Don't you want that? That type of joy that is living and real, that is active and beautiful? That's what the church is called to be. But I want to close before we move to the table and go to a passage that speaks even above joy. I don't think it's accidental or incidental that when Paul is writing of these fruits of the Spirit, that the first fruit of the Spirit that he mentions is love. And I remind us from 1 Corinthians 13, "...if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love," I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I know the church is filled with plenty of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. And that's just the pastor. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing if we want to be mature in Christ, if we want to build up one another and build up the church, not just numerically, but more importantly, spiritually, and in mutual love and accountability, then hear this. But as I'm going to read it, I'm going to do something that I saw uh, Kevin DeYoung do recently. Change, you'll get what I mean. Here again in the word, Jesus is patient and kind jesus does not envy or boast jesus is not arrogant or rude jesus does not insist on his own way jesus is not irritable or resentful jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing but jesus rejoices with the truth jesus bears all things jesus believes all things jesus hopes all things and jesus endures all things jesus will never end not some sort of wishy-washy, hallmark, whitewashed version of love, but love as we've seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we build one another up, as as we grow together, it is my prayer that we will grow in this great love, in these fruits of the Spirit, as we employ the means and the gifts that the Spirit has given to us for His glory and for our mutual edification. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these wonderful gifts that you give your people and your bride. We pray that we would not be quick to feast upon the distractions of this world, but instead that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would feast upon your ordinary means of grace. Lord, I thank you for this dear congregation, Christ Presbyterian. I pray for her pastor, Jacob His wife, Anjanette, and son, Elliot, as they are enjoying time away, I pray that they might be refreshed. So when they return, they are renewed in their calling to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Indeed, show us all. As we prayed earlier, thy kingdom come. Show what part we have to play in bringing that to fruition. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. And we pray this in your mighty and matchless name. Amen.